This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our September edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. Bryce, how are you today? School's back in session. It's great. I know. Isn't it great? You know, by the end of the summer, if you have kids, they've spent too much time together and they really do need a break from each other. Yeah. These are two dads that work (laughs) from home primarily. So yeah, yeah, I I, I feel your uh, sentiment there. And as you said, the kids are back to school. It's always hard to say goodbye to summer. And schools get a bad rap. Generally, they're at the center of our culture wars. But the returns to investment in public schools are tremendous. And at the individual level, most American parents are happy with their kids' school. Bryce, let's start there. Talk about public perception of our education system. Yeah, there's a variety of polls that ask different questions. So you get slightly different answers depending on exactly how you phrase it. But we'll start with Gallup. They've asked it for a long time and, you know, for years. And there was a little dip with COVID. But for years, 75, 80 percent of parents are satisfied with their kids' school Education Next, they have a different survey. They ask you to grade it like A, B, C, D, whatever it is. I think it's like two-thirds of parents give an A or a B to their kids' schools. Mm-hmm. A different survey was done you know, a few months ago. It didn't ask about school, but it asked about where your kid was. you know. And 90% of parents think their kid is excelling or roughly where they need to be. So at least certainly from the, you know, from the parent perspective, sure. our schools seem to be delivering. I mean, we should just pause for a moment. And I'm not sure what the listener thinks, but when I saw those numbers, I thought, one, tremendously higher than you would expect if you were to watch cable news, right? If you were to watch cable news or consume most popular media, you would think that our schools are a disaster, that, you know, either the curriculum is corrupt or the teachers were incompetent, but really it's a huge success. These same surveys, not always these exact ones, but if this is part of the I'm fine, but everything sucks mentality exactly. that has, has yeah. pervaded, you know, we see this with respect to people's financial situation, right? Like, how are you doing financially? 75% of Americans in 2021 were like, I'm doing fine. Yeah. But the um, economy sucks. But the economy is terrible, right? Uh, I, you know, I've heard of this with CEOs as well, right? You know, ask CEO, how's the economy? It's terrible. How's your firm? How's your industry? Oh, it's great. We're going to grow. Right. You know, so we have this disconnect, which I I think, you know, is part of that larger, you know, we just went through on social media. But like, yeah, most people think that the world that they're living in is fine. That's not to say that there aren't going to be issues or problems. And, you know, there's certainly things that, you know, you may want to improve or whatever it is. But if we take a step back and we just look at, well, what is the big picture here? You know, I think the reality is, is that, while people think that everybody else's schools are terrible, the school that they actually know something about is right. fine. The school they have experience with. Right, which probably we should probably weight that more than my rating of what 
schools overall, right? right? Which are based on whatever cable news segment or whatever the, you know, the internet feeds me and, you know, give me some outrage about whatever schools are doing. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think most people, you know, and we have more objective measures. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Let's high get school, into that. High school graduation rates are as high as they've ever been. I, you know, again, we'll see what COVID does to this stuff. But, sure. kind of, you know, as we got into COVID, high school graduation rates were up. The share of kids that go to college kind of plateaued for a while, but, you know, still is roughly or at peaks. Mm -hmm. An interesting paper was done that actually looked at a whole bunch of measures of skills between kids that graduated in the 70s or late 70s and the late 90s. Okay, so comparing one age cohort, yeah, cohort, one, you know, yeah. we're you know, we're, and we're we're due to get the I know we've got to wait a little while for sure. them to grow up, but like, you know, the you know these surveys that are done, these longitudinal surveys, one was started in the late seventies, one was started in the late nineties. So they took and they said, look, let's measure, you know, there's like test scores in there, there's job skills, uh-huh. there's educational attainment, all that kind of stuff, and you know, and yeah, over the course of twenty years. From the labor economist perspective, they had more skills. Sure. Right. And what are, um, what, let's break that down. What are the skills we're talking about? Well, here? you know, so in that case, I mean, they're kind of just trying to predict labor market success. So they're okay. looking at, you know, the ASVAB test, which is, a, you know, the military test, you know, essentially it's an IQ test type mm-hmm. thing. Uh, they're looking at, you know, your actual educational attainment that you achieve. What They're, grade level you, know, you grade level, made it to? You know, I can't remember what else is in there, but sure. yeah, but you know, oh, work experience and, you know, things that you've done, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we're, we're succeeding in test scores are up. All, you know, these things are all, you know, there are, there are trade-offs in terms of our pursuit of some of this stuff. Sure. You know, some people complain that the graduation rate is at least artificially inflated because of high stakes measures and things like that. And people have looked at it and they said, well, maybe some to some degree, but there clearly is something here, right? We really did get better at getting kids to graduate from high school in the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. Again, from a big picture perspective, there's nothing that says, again, we'll see what COVID does to this long term. But, you know, we were on a trajectory with respect to what we were achieving that was at least as good as anything that you and I were dealing with I won't say how many years ago we went to high school. Yeah, uh, let's not reveal that information. Uh, it's too it, depressing. <laughs> or our parents or, you know, our older siblings or whatever it is. So, you know, I think we have to – it's too easy to be negative uh, with respect to schools because that's what we do. We're negative about everything, you know, and it's important to at least start a conversation by saying, you know what, our schools – they do a pretty good job and they're doing a, a, you know as good of a job in terms of at least a lot of the stuff that we care about as we've ever done. Right, right. And I think it's important to uh, remember how we're describing this. This is an aggregate across the country. There are certainly school districts, individual schools, individual classes within schools that are in crisis. We're not denying that, but just in general, the system, as it's put together at the national level and operationalized locally, is doing it as well as it ever has. Yeah, at least in terms of the the stuff that's easily measurable. Yeah. Graduating a kid from high school, that's something we clearly care about. Mm-hmm. Promoting a kid into post-secondary education. The test score measures that we have, you know, there's this thing called the National, national Assessment of Educational Progress. In the past 20 years... Math scores for fourth and eighth sure. graders have improved. English scores for fourth and eighth graders have improved. You know, I mean, you know, maybe we want them to go up faster. Maybe they're still not where we want them to be. And you're, and you're absolutely right. There is enormous variation in all of these things mm-hmm. across schools. And, you know, we're not trying to say that every school and every classroom is operating at peak right. efficiently. Right. But it's important to kind of start conversations about education 
with that, keeping this in mind that our system is not like a garbage system. Sure. It's a system that works pretty well and is certainly managing to keep our society functioning at some level. Right. You know, so. right. And, and what do we know about mechanism? over that period of improvement. What are the causes? I mean, are improvements in curriculum, facilities, teacher quality? How do schools work, right? I'm going to break it into three categories. So first, you know, there's just the stuff that we always think about with schools, right? Mm-hmm. Cognitive skills, right? You know, okay, we're going to teach you how to read. Right, do math, do math, basic science. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? And, you know, and that was 20 years ago. That's No Child Left Behind. And No Child Left Behind is par- at least partially responsible for some of these things, mm-hmm. right? It redirected resources within the educational system towards improving these tangible measures. Right. Right. And when you incentivize something, people respond to it. And, you know, that's also part of what's happened with high school graduation. We, you know, changed how we tracked it. We changed how we measure it. There were some penalties or whatever for not meeting certain things. So, you know, I I do think you have to attribute some of these at least measurable things to the fact that we paid more attention to them, right? We paid more attention to test scores. We paid more attention to graduation rates. And when you pay attention to something, it's not surprising to me and probably to the listener that, yeah, people will respond on a margin in that area. Okay. So that's the first area that schools work. And that's a big part of what schools have invested in, not without fits and starts, not without making mistakes, you know, in terms of how we do teaching or various pedagogies, you know, we can go next door and, you know, there's a whole bunch of people over there. College of education is the door, uh, is the building next door to uh, the Gallagher business building where we're recording. You know, and, you know, there's people there that are doing studies and trying to, you know, figure out, well, what's the best way to teach a kid how to do math or reading? And, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, all sorts of changes that have gone on there. We'll see if they're effective or not. But Yeah, there are people who are smart and hardworking or trying to get better at what they're doing. In some magic world, there's a recipe, right? And for every kid, we would know the recipe. Yeah. Right? We That's know, the ideal. Right. This is the ideal. We would just know. You would show up like... My kids were watching Jumanji, the new Jumanjis with The Rock. You oh, know. yeah. You know, and you can tap your chest and it tells you your strengths and weaknesses, right? Every, You know, it would be great. Everybody would walk into school. They would tap their chest. Their teacher would be able to look at them and go, oh, okay, we have a recipe for you. Sure. Right? We're going to do this at this point. We're going to do this. And, you know, the problem that we have is we don't tap our chest and get to see all those strengths and weaknesses. We kind of have to figure them out on the fly. And yep. Teachers are working at scale. And there's all sorts of challenges with trying to figure out that exact recipe for each student. Now, what we do instead is we have broad recipes. And those broad recipes, you know, like I said, to the extent that those broad recipes are feeding into better high school graduation rates or better test scores or mm-hmm. you know more college completion, we have the highest share of people with college degrees that we ever have. And we will continue to see that share go up. Mm-hmm. Those broad recipes are working. Just to get back to, because so there's the cognitive component yes. to that. But then there's two other things that we've learned relatively recently. So first with the test scores and value, you know, we started measuring all this stuff on tests, but then somebody said, you know, the big thing that was always like, you know, on the side was, well, there's all this other stuff, you know, not just other subjects that are left out of the testing, but non-cognitive skills. Yeah. Other skills, social skills, social skills, skills. emotional skills, you know, hard work, motivation, Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff, which kind of kept lurking in various studies that would come out and be like, well, there's this magic and it didn't seem to matter for text scores, but then we followed these kids up and, and they're adults and they're somehow doing better. 
Yeah. Right. So it's clearly the cognitive tests that they were taking throughout school weren't capturing this thing that they had that was lurking in their in their toolkit that they then deployed as adults and it turned into more money and more success. Mm -hmm. And we started to learn how to measure that at the school level as well. And it turns out that, yes, just like there are some schools that are better at producing improvements in test scores, there are other schools that are better at producing social emotional well-being or hard work ability. And interestingly, it's not that correlated. Right, the, the two, the success in both areas is not. Yeah, the, you know, or these three, you know, there's hard. Right, we right, we right. can break the social into, you know, and there's just, you know, there's some that obviously that they're they're super school. They've got the recipe and all sure. of the dimensions, but for you know, for the most part, we it's not like if you're good at producing test scores, you're also good at producing social emotional right, development. Right. You know, so that suggests potentially that there's actually trade offs here. Right. Yeah. Like they're investing one at the cost of another, perhaps. That, you know, with at the resources that are available in these schools, the level of resources that are available, people are facing trade offs, or we haven't developed the technology. We haven't got the recipe right and published it that everybody has. Oh, yes, we we have all this, you know, and that's part of what people who do education research, they're going to have to start figuring out because, I mean, these papers that are looking at the value added of schools in terms of social emotional, I mean, these are two, three years old, sure. right? And the new one, the one that's just out as of a few weeks ago, is the new Raj Chetty Opportunity Insights paper on social okay. capital. There's enormous variation in income mobility across neighborhood. Yes. We look across cities, there's enormous variation. But even if you go inside of cities and just move neighborhood to neighborhood, there's as much variation in terms of how much people move up the income ladder and so the question has always been: so There's as much variation within within cities a as big city as across, across the, the whole. Yeah. So wow. okay. you know you can go. The one that Raj Chetty talks about is if just inside of New York City. Queens is a highly mobile place. The Bronx is not. And the question is: Well, what drives these geographic variation yep. in in mobility? And the new study that they just came out with, you know, the thing that they find that predicts income mobility more than anything else is heterogeneity in your social network. The simple story, the one that easy, it's easy to understand, particularly if you went to a large public high school like I did, because there was only one big school in my town, so everybody was there. You saw the whole mix, right? But what that meant was there was a, now there's an opportunity for somebody from a low-income background to interact with peop, more people from a sure. high-income background. And particularly if there's not a friendship bias or what, what is it, friending bias is what they call it. Right, where you just stick with your own types of people. If you actually are exposed to them in ways that allow you to become friends mm -hmm. with people from, quote, the other side of the tracks, right? Well, then just that exposure appears to matter, yeah. right? You know, just that exposure that being, being friends with people of different backgrounds, it allows you to then learn the secrets, right? Of, oh, I could do that. We'll be back to our conversation with Bryce Ward after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey, this is Jeff Petticord, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward about our public education system. I did research on this, oh gosh, almost 15 years ago, right? It wasn't exactly about this, but there was this program that was in Oregon and I was hired to help evaluate it. And 
it was this really simple program that I was like, this can't possibly work, right? It was just they hired or they got some volunteers, right? Retired teachers, other, other adults in the community. They just came and hung out in like the counseling office okay, and helped kids fill out their FAFSAs and their college applications. Wow. And I did this and I was like, the effects were enormous, we matched all these kids who were in the program or in schools that had the program to whether or not they went to college and where they went to college. And I was like, this is the easiest low hanging fruit in the world. Yeah. And it turns out that this has now been replicated in a number of other studies. Right. But it's that exact thing, that, which I think is what's happening with the friending stuff. Sure. Is I just become friends. and I start hanging out at so-and-so's house and so-and-so's house. Their parents are college educated and it's, yep. that's just in the air at that house. And now they're like, you know, we're at dinner or whatever it is. And they ask, oh, hey, are you going to go to college? And you're like, I don't know. Well, this is fine. Like, we you can do this. You just open up that door. You just open it up. It so, exposes you. And that exposure appears to matter. Does it flow both ways? As you're describing it crudely, that the poor kids get a lot out of hanging out with the rich kids. Does it flow the other way? Do the rich kids benefit from hanging out with the poor kids? Well, in their study, they were just focused on income mobility. Sure. So, you trying know, to increase like, income mobility. Yeah, so that, you know, that they're just trying to understand why some places the poor kids when they're older are richer yep. than other poor kids, okay. right? So we're measuring a, a, a narrow you know, set of but, outcomes. But when we look at other studies about the similar kind of stuff, yes, the, the, the classic studies are roommate studies, mm-hmm. right? So you go to college, you randomly get signed a roommate. You know, when you say, okay, well, I got assigned a roommate that was very different than me. And the easiest, of course, is just race. Yep. You know, studies that have looked at random roommate assignment, and it's been a while since I've looked at these, but if I recall correctly, they move the needle in terms of sympathy towards the other types of people that you happen to be exposed to. And those effects persist even after you're no longer roommates. Yeah. I mean, classic like contact hypothesis from the 50s. So, okay. So, so. I mean, this is a the, the generalizable statement is diversity in your friend group really matters and is really important. That would appear to be the you know particularly from an income mobility perspective. If you're trying to understand why some places do a really good job of of moving the needle in terms of why they people climb the income ladder, that diversity in the friendship network matters. And, and the cool thing is, is this study, uh, if you go to uh, socialcapital.org, uh-huh. like they have a map, they have like literally every school. The map, the data set and the, the visualization. You can look up your amazing. high school, you can look up your college in terms of both, you know, in terms of what they call exposure, like how much are we mixing people, but then also the friending bias, right? Are you actually becoming friends with people of different backgrounds in these places or what are the odds? And, you know, then you got all sorts of measures that you can compare mm-hmm. and look and see like, you know, which school in your area is doing the best job at actually mixing with people or not. And then you could map that into the other maps that they have in terms of, you know, what, which neighborhoods uh, are actually, you know, and again, uh, you know, the, the income mobility stuff, it takes time. Yeah. Right. So we don't, what we're basically saying is we know that kids who were born in the early eighties, right. Cause we're, they're now old enough that we can see what their, adult see what their earnings, mobility is, you know, cause usually you kind of plateau in your mid thirties. Right. So we really got to wait till you're in your mid thirties. You know, so we're measuring all this stuff, but then we're, you know, the friendship network stuff is more contemporaneous. So we'll see if it actually correlates long term. So we don't know exactly because this is new, right? Mm -hmm. Our ability to measure mobility at this granular level, at this geographic scale is very new. Yeah. So we don't know how much it changes over time or, you know, and that'll be the next set of things that we'll learn in the next decade is, oh, well, kids that were born in this decade, you know, it, it changed 
And we'll be able to say, oh, well, what changed at that time so that right. we can then figure out why did this measure of mobility change? But do, do we know much about what are the most significant drivers of success at the public school level? Or is it curriculum? Is it teacher effects? I know that teacher effects can be tremendously strong. So if you look at the research on charter schools, and in particular, these no excuses charter schools, these okay. are these very disciplined, you know, lo- longer school year, very intense. Okay, intense um, program and, and curriculum. You know, and and the beauty of these particular programs is oftentimes they're oversubscribed. So there's lotteries to get in. So we get mm. to use a lottery mechanism to evaluate them. And the research that I've seen suggests that the no excuses charter schools you know, which is kind of a whole measure. You can't separate it because there's a whole, so many different components. But no excuses at charter schools, which are very are are mostly predominant in low income urban areas. Yep. But in that environment, they appear to be very very successful. Okay. Now other charter schools. Now I don't know if they're no excuses charter schools or not. But you know, so the best research on this comes out of Boston. Nobel Prize winner Josh Angrist and his team have looked at this. Right. They basically find that the no excuses charter schools do a great job. But you go out in the suburbs. And the charter schools there basically take middle class over middle class kids and do nothing to them. So it's not that charter schools do nothing to them that's different than the. the normal they may school. actually make them slightly worse off. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, it may be no effect, but there's a couple of different studies. Sure. One of them shows one study shows you know very increasing school choice actually made them worse off. And mm. different study shows that there's kind of nothing or maybe a slight decline to the extent that, you know, for at least again, and this is again, that going back to that magic recipe, right. Yeah. That for each individual student or type of student, we've got to figure out how to match. But the no excuses charter school model, which includes a whole bunch of, we can't break it apart because we haven't broken that apart. But if you put all of it together, it appears to be very effective. Yeah. So in our remaining time, Bryce, I would like to just ask you, how much do we know about the effects of some of the school's closures that we lived through during COVID? I know it's too early to tell on some of the longer term outcome measures, but what do we know already? It was bad. In general, if you think about the recipe for student success, it's not just about schools, right? That recipe also includes the rest of the environment that the kid is operating Mm -hmm. in. So from home environment to neighborhood to community and all that kind of stuff. And so in places where the set of resources that are otherwise surrounding the child tend to be more depressed, more they're poorer or, you know, just, the, you know, the, the resources available are less, you know, there's just not as much available to them. School is a bigger deal, yeah. right? We, we really hinge, their success really does depend on school, right? right? Because there's not some substitute, right? You know, for affluent families, if the school isn't there, the family will step in with other yeah, resources. A, they have an e- more right? resources to replicate the effects. There's more resources available to replicate the effects. And so in in, in, in households or for kids for whom school's really the, the, the main lever, yeah. Things, yeah, for those kids, school closures seem to have the worst effects. Mm-hmm. Now, the bigger question that we won't start – we'll start learning the answer to probably, I'm assuming, in a few weeks – so we've we've looked at test scores from the 2019-2020 school year, which is when the initial shutdowns were. We've looked at stuff from the 2020-2021 school year, which is when there was huge variation, right? So some places just went back and dealt with COVID. Some places were hybrid. Some places were still remote. There was a lot of 
variation. Yeah. And then the 2022 or 2021, 2022 school year, which, you know, was the last school year, uh, we should start getting their, you know, the this test that we tend to use to look at this stuff. And most people were back. And so the, the big question is, is, okay, how well were we able to start catching people back sure. up? And, you know, if we go back to the surveys that we started with, the parent survey, well, one of those parent surveys, they actually did it first in 2021 and they did it again in 2022. And the share of parents who said that their kid was behind or had been adversely affected by COVID, it fell by roughly half. Okay. Right? So at least from a parent perspective, now the parents may not be the best evaluators of their children's Although the same parent saying my child was behind, saying that he or she is less behind, that's more reliable. Yeah, it suggests that something's going on. Yeah. But, you know, we'll see. We'll see what the, you know, I mean, it's going to be, I mean, we're talking it's literally a multi-trillion dollar question, right? Because these happen globally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the extent that we took a big bite out of a whole generation's human capital, we we kind of skipped that in the in the beginning, right? Like the returns to education are one of the most well established returns in economics, right? Yeah. And you know, if you look globally, right? You know, I mean, most recent study that I could find was some World Bank researchers who took eleven hundred different studies on the returns to schooling from across the globe. Wow! Just in the past decade, right? I mean, we've been studying this for sixty years, but we've been you know we've been changing techniques, right? You know, yes, there's variation. There's variation across people and time and all sorts of stuff. But if you average it out, and this is one of the, before the study had even come out, if you would ask me what the average was, I would have said it's eight to ten percent. And what did they find? Nine percent. So each year of schooling, if just from in terms of your wages, you know, adds ten percent to your wages, and that effect has been there forever. You know, it fluctuates. It changes over time. These are economic parameters, but schooling works. And if we've messed that up, right, if we've messed it up in ways that if COVID has messed it up in ways that depressed the number of years of schooling across, you know, multiple years of, you know, 10 percent, if you take just one year for every, you know, I mean, that's a huge hit to the aggregate productive capacity of a generation that we'll all feel, you know, and again, that's just the wage return, right? We don't even add in the fact that there's health returns, there's benefits to your kids, there's benefits to your health, there's benefits even to your parents' health. There's all sorts of other benefits from education that we may have messed up. And so we really do need to be paying very close attention because we're going to need to mitigate whatever losses because yeah it can get to a really big number if we've adversely affected the educational attainment of a number of cohorts yeah for me the the key takeaway is we've got a system that is largely working pretty darn well people are generally happy with it it's providing some important outcomes and let's not screw it up and we can screw it up in a in a wide variety of ways we don't need to get into all of that but I will say, Bryce, as we've closed, I, I will thank you, as always, for this great information. But I think we should also express a little bit of gratitude for all the great folks in our community and beyond who work in this space. Teachers, administrators, parent volunteers, all the support structure. I mean, it's a hard job, and they're doing it overall really well. So thank you. Ditto. I mean, they. we really do need to take some time to, you know, continue to express gratitude for the people who keep that particular machine running because it is one of the most important machines in all of society. Well said. And we'll see you next month, Bryce. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from UM alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. Keely Larson is our producer. VTO, Jeff Amet, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. Social media by AJ Williams. And Jeff Neese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.